How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I am Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 106. Yeah? Spot on. <sighs> that was almost a... I haven't done that in about 30 episodes, get the episode wrong, and I almost did. Well, it kind of feels like 30 weeks since we've recorded the... Li- These are the longest weeks ever, aren't they? They are really drawing out. Maybe that's it. Maybe just this time of year is just not mine. You know what it is, mm. right? This time last, This time last year... I was on a trip and we right. did six pre-records. Yeah. And something about for me, because I'm not the biggest summer fan. Um, summer sucks here. Taking it's pretty bad. that six-week window to go somewhere really cold really breaks summer up and makes me feel like so much better. You escape. You, es- you escape from the hot I oven do. that is Australia I in do. summer. <laughs> Perth is great if you've got aircon, but in you know normal circumstances, I don't. Right. So, the, the, the snow is your aircon yeah, well, a lot of times. Can always add more layers on, Jake. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's, and, that's... and after a while, there's no there's no more layers to take off. Exactly. And the cops get onto you. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's funny you mention that because this is going to be a very very Australian focused episode. This is true. This is Australia Day week. Yeah. Um, and in keeping tradition with what we did last year on the show, uh, we did do a film. That was based and which is based in Australia, made in Australia. Yeah, sweet country, yeah. Yeah, we did sweet country last year, and then we'll talk about a little bit later in the show with the film of the week. Yeah, but I think even the first half of the show is littered with Australian cinema. This is true, one way or another. But before we do that, I'm going to have to give you an an Australian quote for. Couldn't find a 2006 Australian film. To be fair, I didn't look hard enough. Pretty sure Australia was 2006. no, no, that was that was a little early. I think it's 2009, I reckon, okay. maybe 2010. But uh, to be fair, there was really only one film from 2006 that I could quote, and it might be a little obvious, might be a little too obvious, but it's to make up for last week. Mm. You were what, my, four my first for one. defeat. Yeah, mm. I looked it up by the way, because we uh. were, we were both like, surely Charlie and Chocolate Factory was panned. Mm-hmm. It actually wasn't. Actually, it's mixed to positive reviews. Wow. <laughs> a lot of people given... Crazy, I hated that film. Yeah, a lot of people given the benefit of the doubt to Johnny and... Johnny and they wouldn't Tim. do that anymore. No. Oh, oh, oh no, they would not. Oh. All right, Zeke, are you ready for your 2006 quote? I am. And I'm going to amend some of the words because we try and be a family-friendly podcast. Of course. So uh, I'll, I'll mud some up. The quote, Zeke, is, Enough is enough. I have had it with these mother effing snakes on this mother effing plane. That would be <laughs> the Samuel Jackson snakes on a plane. Ding, ding, ding. You know, the <laughs> yeah. funny thing is I what? nearly watched that last night. Really? Yeah. I nearly watched it. I've seen it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were just going to play a game of Drink to Cringe and Snakes on a Plane is on Netflix now. Damn. I'm pretty sure. I watched a couple of scenes back when I was writing the quote down and it... It like the I think the premise is stupid, but the actual execution I was like eh, not the worst. It's no. finely shot, yeah. yeah. As in, like finely, as in it, it's not incompetent. Unfortunately, I'm just a little low on those gems, those really bad films that are just so entertaining to watch. There's a lot of Netflix's bad films are just kind of like uh, hallmark films, right. films that are like like those Christmas films that fill yeah. up the three o'clock shift on a channel seven or something like that you know they're there's they're nothing technically wrong with them they're just mm. boring and kind of in, just incompetent sort of they they're, they just gray matter in your right brain, basically <laughs> they just hang out 
Whereas there are only a few rooms or F the proms out there to really enjoy. And yeah, take yeah. In. They're terrible. And swiped. Oh, swiped. What oh, a classic. What a classic. I was thinking about that from the other day. The other quote I could have used that Sam Jackson also says is, all praises to the PlayStation. That is an actual line from Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, well, moving into what we've watched in the last week. Yeah. Jake, what have you caught in the last That week? was a good segue because I was about to ask you the question. I saw you taking a swig of your drink. Mm-hmm. So I was going to prolong what I was going to say. Yeah. But then you caught me You caught me off guard. And you, you did go. it before you drank. Very very good podcasting right there. Yeah, I've been doing it for 106 episodes. So. <laughs> you learn from the master. Mm. Well, I uh, kept it very Australian this week. There's one, there's one thing I did watch in the last week that I'm purposely going to wait till next week. Okay. Um, I just want to keep the conversation solely on these particular three films that I watched for the first time. I watched Mad Max, Mad Max 2, and Mad Max Fury Road. Wow. All for the first time in the last week. That's it. <laughs> And Max 2 and Fury Road, so you didn't do 3? I didn't do 3. Is that Funded Dome? Something like that. Mm. I, I didn't see the third one. So what? this is actually an interesting story, the order that I watched it in. Okay. Because obviously the last few years, having you know, Mad Max Fury Road is essential viewing from the last decade, from what I hear. So I was like, well, I've got to do it, but I should at least watch the first Mad Max with Mel Gibson to at least understand the world in that. Mm-hmm. Now, this ended up kind of tricking me because the original Mad Max doesn't really have the iconography that you think of when you think of Mad Max. It's actually it predates that where it's not just like a yellow desert. It's at, There's actually quite a lot of, I uh, say contemporary in quotes because we're talking about the late 70s here. Yeah. But quite contemporary Australian sort of iconography. There's still like law enforcement. That's actually who Mad Max is. He's mm-hmm. actually sort of a cop, essentially. And uh, a lot of the iconography of mad max where it's this complete chaos and it's just a desert wasteland and the post-apocalyptic elements those actually come in mad max 2 which i was a bit surprised by so i watched the first mad max jump straight to fury road and i was like it's a bit of a jump here <laughs> it's a bit of a bit of a jarring transition Completely, yeah yeah that's a fascinating fury road's yeah. almost well i mean it's technically i think it's a continuation of those original ones but, yeah it is it is but it's obviously a huge jump because it's not played by Mel Gibson anymore. It's right. played by Tom Hardy, and and obviously tonally is is far uh, different enough to be a little confusing. Like some people don't even associate the originals with Fury Road. Yeah, it, it does feel like a soft reboot in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. When I watch these films back to back, so I watched the second one after Fury Road, so I was mm. able to sort of connect the dots, and it was kind of funny because the second one's really the only one that opens with any sort of like flashback context of the world mm-hmm. like the first film and fury road just sort of drop you in and you got to figure out what's going on from there yeah um but uh the thing i found watching mad max and particularly the second one in fury road is it feels very episodic the stories like they don't really feel too connected the world is obviously the same and i would say that the world of mad max 2 and mad max fury road are pretty similar yeah um that's not so much of a jarring transition but because the stories are so episodic and it feels like they're sort of veering away from Max. So I think Furiosa is the one getting her own film now. Oh, really? I think that's what's happening, yeah. That'd be cool. The I guess that would be the fifth Mad Max film? Yep. Yeah, technically. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed them all. I think probably Mad Max 2 is my favourite. Fury Road? Uh, no, that original, the Road really? Warrior. Yeah, because look, um, I, I think Fury Road's incredible. 
from mm-hmm. a production standpoint, the action's incredible. I still actually love the action, the original film, the most, because that was pure budget mm. chaos. You could oh, tell yeah. the filmmaking behind it was so rough and uh, rough and tumble, and like there's cars that are really driving through each other, and like there's insane set pieces in Fury Road, but there was just something a little less personable about it. And look, I don't care about the arguments of oh, it has no story. Literally every tutor slash teacher I've had in any media class dating back to high school hates Fury Road because there's no story. I don't agree with that. There is a story. There is a plot. I think it's the Fury Road. Yeah. I think yeah. Fury Road's the tightest out of all of them. I think from okay. a three action from a three act structure point of view, it's very tight. You yeah. Can, there are clear defined. There's a clearly defined hero's journey, but I think the simplicity of it maybe might be the. It's very simple. You know, and that's why I find it episodic because it, it there's little plot and little story. But it's concentrated. But it's it's world building. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's got no story. There is a story there. Yeah. Very, I think it's a, I think it's a fabulous story that has multiple layers to it that you can deconstruct from a critical standpoint. I think it's and from like yeah from a theoretical standpoint, it's a fascinating film. Mm. There's a lot of different uh, bits and pieces you can pick from it. So right. yeah. That's fair. I, I think I definitely took different things out of all three of the films that I watched. Because I think the first one's definitely the weakest, the original. Mm-hmm. But I kind of fell in love with it. For the, It has that sort of grindhouse feeling. You can tell they struggled to make it. It sort of reminded me of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where it just sort of succeeded in this low-budget area. But then I also think the second one is so well-praised because it, it sort of takes all of these concepts, the, the Western context, the chaotic you know, every man for himself idea and funnels it through probably the most, uh, I don't want to say obvious narrative, but like the, it's it's the narrative that just works. It mm-hmm. works for the film. And I Absolutely. think, and you're right, I think Fury Road, and I, it might even be not so much the fact that people think, oh, there's no story, which again, I don't agree with. It's just, it does take risks. Like the interceptors destroyed in the first two minutes. Uh, Mad Max isn't the main character of him. He's not, it's Furiosa. Mm-hmm. And I think some people just didn't, gel with that that's but, fair um, yeah that's fair. but uh, i thought they were all great in their own unique ways zeke so yeah well unfortunately i didn't catch a lot of films this week myself mm. i don't really have too much to say about the one film i did catch other than the <laughs> film of the week uh i caught miss congeniality um i enjoyed it sounds it like a funny. certain female made you watch that um yes sarah <laughs> did make me watch it um but yeah it was an it was a fun time kind of nice popcorn film but you sort of can tell when uh you know uh, but the other thing which is more on an australian level right um i managed to catch the stand i think they're still calling it a series but i feel like it's going to turn like it's going to be a season two it's going to turn into a show not, okay. not a series um which was released i think early in December. Can't quite peg exactly when right. it was released on Stan. So it's, it's pretty normally, pretty recent. It's pretty recent. Um yeah. it's a series called Bump, which follows a teenager who's sixteen, um accidentally and fall pregnant without her knowing and actually having a child. Um so she had one of those um there are ter- certain type of pregnancies. Some people do have them where they don't actually realise they're pregnant and then they have a kid. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. So it's a different sort of... It's a more hidden conception. And obviously it's with another kid at school. And he's from a um, 
a South American family, a Latino mm-hmm. family. Um, and obviously she's from a more grounded, like more traditional Australian uh, family. And it's sort of just, this is obviously this, this child, like raising a child yeah. is sort of the center through line, but it's a lot of the, the sort of family drama. Honestly, drew a lot of parallels to things like baby teeth um, in terms of... okay. Um, and if you listen to our discussion on that and even our awards discussion a couple of weeks ago... I think. Yeah, and even 104 when we talk about why we gave it the award, it's a lot of lost people, like um, sort of searching. Okay. And it has a very similar sort of... A bunch of people, the parents are not solid rocks. They are incredibly flawed characters that are also as lost as the the teens and sort of has that similar, very similar dynamic, um, a sort of a quartet leads it. It's definitely about, uh, the daughter and, uh, the daughter's parents and obviously the son and the son's family. And so there's probably more, probably five to six people. So it's a bit more ensemble, but definitely there are a lot of parallels. I think, obviously, I think, I think baby teeth, obviously having much less time, uh, right, because you're talking about a whole season of TV here. Yeah, and most of the episodes range between 20 to... The funny thing with now Netflix and Stan with these series, they don't keep to the, the TV formula anymore. Some episodes are like 20 minutes and then some are 35 minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ne- I think Netflix paved their way yeah. a long time ago. It's, I mean, you see it, the big one, Stranger Things... Actually, Stranger Things is not too bad. This, see, it actually shows which shows the <laughs> self-discipline. Because a show like BoJack, and I get animation's different. Mm-hmm. Animation is more strict, but like they are to the second, and it's like they're a Netflix show. They don't need to be. Yeah, I think it maybe it comes back to what if uh, they got picked up by a network or they were given the network opportunity, Good. they were able yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Whereas some of these shows are like, yeah, we have no aspirations to get picked up. We'll stick on the, the streaming platform. This is a Stan original. This show, bump, yeah, and yeah. it's it comes out of Screen New South Wales. It's based in a town just outside the city. I mean, you can see the city in the distance. Yeah, that's cool. Um, which is actually, yeah, really cool. Um, honestly, it's got some great performances. It's got um, an Australian comedian, Angus Sampson, in it, and he's really good. Um, I feel like I've heard that name before. You would have. If you watched Thank God You're Here, he was on that a couple uh, of times. Um, classic. It's also got... Um, Don't you have box sets of Thank God You're Here? I do. Oh, you um, cheeky monkey, I love you. It's also got Claudia Car- uh, Carvin, which actually, she's been on quite a few Australian stuff. I think she was the sister in Offspring, which actually won quite a lot of actor award, you know. Okay. The... the no, well, the, the, the Australian Logie, Oscars. Logies, Logies, that's it. Oh, Logies. It t- oh, TV. TV. Yep, yep, it was yep. TV. Um, and it's really good. And a lot of afters graduates coming out. So not a lot of them. This is a lot of, for them, it's there. A lot of them first gig. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, it's really impressive. I've I actually really, only 10 episodes, 11 episodes. And it's pretty constant. It makes you want to watch. There should be a second season. And I think it'd be a really good season. But... It's sort of just trying to... It's got a lot of layers to it. And yeah, I definitely found parallels in baby teeth. Mm. Obviously, minus the terminal illness side from yeah. baby teeth. But, but. I, I, you explaining, I got the sense of like the, the family unit, probably the best way to describe it, but... Well, the terminal illness has been replaced with a child. Gotcha. Basically. same that, sort That's of, a phrase that is probably used more often than it should be. The terminal <laughs> illness has been replaced with a child. <laughs> that could be used in but all I, sorts of yeah. ways. Yeah, 
I really enjoy. I'm definitely starting this year. I've really switched in back into TV shows. You go through phases yeah. where you're more TV than. Film. No, you're absolutely right. I'm starting uh, to. I'm like, hoping to do that. I'm halfway through season five of The Office. Yeah, it's you're like, smashing through it, man. Yeah, so. I said you're gonna you're gonna finish it before I do. I'm over the hump right yeah. now, so um, and I'm enjoy like I'm I've exponentially enjoyed it more, but I'm still not hitting like the. I think this is like the best show, even of that time, right? For sitcoms, I think at this point it might just be. I think part of the reason of the hype and why people love it so much is because they grew up with it. Or there's an element of them watching it as it played. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a way where you could watch The Office years and years and years after it finished and get that same effect. Because mm. I recognize, I think it's a very well-made show in a lot of aspects, but I'm never going to have the same relationship I have to other shows, like Prison Break. I think and Prison Break's not as good of a show, an, yeah, but I grew up with absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I think it's it's also interesting to see a lot of for a lot of these actors, this show was their, their obviously their platform for their break too. Yeah. And John Krasinski... That was pretty early into Ed Helms really pushing into the mainstream. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it was um, even Steve Carell. Like, most of yeah. the films that he broke out with, I think the first season was already shot by then. Yeah. So, they cast him before he became I mean, like a name. I mean, it's impressive. Yeah. And I wouldn't say Steve Carell really pushed into sort of... You would call him an A-list actor now, I would probably say. And Well, he's an A-list comedian actor. For oh, sure. Like I would in, say, he's, I think in the last five or six years, he's been in more serious roles than comedic roles. Yeah. I would say. And I honestly think I've enjoyed, like, now, looking back now, I actually think he's a better serious actor than he is a comedic actor. Okay. I'm not the. I don't, yeah. I've actually, honestly, don't think it's some of his com- comedic roles have aged very well. Like, I watched a bit of. Um, get smart the other day, and I, I, I used lo- to like. I, I love used to get. get I used to love get smart, Dude, but I wasn't. It's still funny. It's still I don't funny. No, I just for me, it's like the best parts about it are like things like I honestly think the rocks one of the best parts of it. He's funny in it. Like, and Anna Hathaway is pretty good in it. Yeah. Oh, she doesn't want to be called Anne Hathaway anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw a thing on like the Tonight Show. She likes. She wants to be called Annie. Okay, that's how her name spelt though. Yeah. So that that sounds kind of correct now. Someone's like she's course correcting her. Name. Yeah. I think that's how it's spelled, isn't it? A N E. Quick Anne Hathaway. So Annie oh, Hathaway. Yeah, yeah. Side note. Yeah, there you go. Um, there you go. We're already falling for it. What else have we caught, mate? <laughs> no, well, that's it. I watched. I did watch a mini series. I'll say this. I, I watched the Queen's Gambit in the last week, and I think it's excellent. But cool. We're on a bit of a hot streak for Australian. We'll keep it going. Cinema and TV. So we'll talk about it next mm. week. Do you have any more Australian stuff you'd like to talk about before well, we move into our Australian film of the week? Well, and uh, let, let's call it our career section for the week. So yeah, I mean... Let's do that. I ain't doing much else. So. <laughs> well, um, a couple of weeks ago, I teased that there was a little something that may be happening in terms of interviews of bringing people onto the show. And uh, I managed to score a bit of an interview with the co-writer and the director of The Crossing, which is a local WA film. The Halo Films is distributing it, Stephen Mihalovich. And the music composer Desmond Richard, or one of the music composers for the film, and uh, so they they dropped by the studio, Zeke, and uh, we had a bit of a chat. Now, fair warning, just before we jump into this, the interview is forty three minutes long. Mm-hmm. So if you want to skip the interview, just jump ahead to roughly about the hour mark of this episode, um, where we get into the film of the week. But uh, for now, we're going to play this interview. There's no spoilers for the film, so go ahead, listen. It's mostly a discussion about the music. 
and uh, I'm pretty happy with it. I think it came out really well. So here we are. How's it going, guys? Jake Diagrella from the Cinema Sideshow Podcast here. Uh, we're clipping this into episode 106 of the show, and I'm joined by two very special guests uh, who were involved in the local film The Crossing. I'm joined by Stephen Mihalovich, and I'm joined by Desmond Richardson. How are you two going? Very well, thank you. Very well, thank you. Awesome. How did I go with the, the surname there? Oh, it was pretty good. You missed the J. No. I missed the J? <laughs> I believe it's pronounced Stephen Mihalovich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. It. Well, so um, co-writer and director yep. for Stephen um, for The Crossing and the composer is Desmond. And uh, first off, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's actually the first time we've had, uh, I would say, guest of this caliber on the show. Uh, you know, we've had some people on who've done some short films, but you two are involved in a big local feature film. Thank you. Well, that's just rude. I mean, <laughs> clearly you prefer just to run a silent race on your own with no one else in the room. <laughs> <laughs> to wait 106 episodes to finally get someone in. Obviously, the idea is running dry, particularly when you hire us to. Isn't it great to have composers on the show? I mean, mm. geez, it's a whole other, a whole other level. <laughs> That's Sorry, Jake. Complexity to it. I mean, that is a good point. We should address the elephant in the room. Zeke isn't here. He wasn't available, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I'm definitely going to make him go watch this film very soon. Cool. So he can join in on the conversation soon awesome. enough. Um, i got a logline here for the film, for The Crossing, <laughs> if you want me to read it out for those sure. at home who don't know what the film is sure. about when a suspicious death remains unsolved three boys suspect a reclusive indigenous man named bobby played by kelton pell and uh, relentlessly harass him until one of the trio breaks the toxic cycle to make amends so um that's the film thank you mm, right that's there. that's yeah. it that's that the pretty film. much sums it up in case you didn't know i've forgotten i've heard about it remember yeah. that yeah, kelton was in it he was Awesome. He was so good, man. Yeah, he's no, he, so good. he brings a lot to this uh, to oh, this film. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely the heart of the absolutely. Story, yeah, absolutely. Like. Now, before we get into a bit more of a specific conversation about the music of the film, I want to throw some facts at you <laughs> because the film's been out for a little while now. Halo Films is distributing it. It's been playing around the block. Uh, official selection at the Revelation Film Festival. That's how I saw it last month. Uh, winner of the London Independence Film Awards, winner of the micro-budget feature award at Toronto, uh, official selection at the Paris Film Festival, and I believe that is where you got the best editing nomination in Paris. Yes. Congratulations, yeah. Steve. Oh, thank you. My head is getting large. <laughs> best feature film nominee at Hollywood Boulevard Film Festival, and it's screening all over the place, most notably at Backlot Perth, but more recently at the Kookaburra Outdoor Cinema, where I believe it was sold out. Last yeah, night. last night it was it was it was a fantastic, um, great atmosphere, and it was great to sort of bring the film home where it all sort of began, and mm. you know all the locals were really excited to see, uh, you know, the, the areas and. Is that Mundaring? Was it? Yeah, yeah. It's Mundaring. So, uh, half the people there, I think, were actually from Swanview, and um, they were sort of cheering at the beginning when I said, you know, you're going to see Salisbury Road, you're going to see Talbot, you're going to see this, and it, it is what it actually is in real mm. life. So, we, you know, John Forrest is John Forrest, you know. Um, we don't sort of, it's, no, it's not fiction. We actually use the same, you know, um, street names as what it is in real life. So can people we, are pretty excited. Can we talk about that? Like what an awesome backdrop like Swanby was for the movie? <laughs> no. We're going to talk about the music. <laughs> but it was. It just looked wicked, like, because we're not used to seeing it. So, yeah, I mean, I watched the, I watched the movie twice on the big screen. And, and it was a comment that I got from, you know, a lot of friends and that that came mm. down was just how great Perth looked. Mm. On camera because we weren't used to seeing it. Well, at least yeah, I, I certainly wasn't used to seeing it. I mean, I'm sure there's been a few films made over here. But... Yeah, well, I think I had the advantage of sort of living in the area for 
about eight years and just walking around and think asking myself why isn't why hasn't a feature film been made here? This is extraordinary. It's so much uh, beauty, but it's also got sort of stark contrast of of, of pockets of darkness as well so there's these incredible juxtapositions and the landscape is amazing it's so much diversity so yeah um and of course you know obviously for me it's just a great sort of exciting thing to you know make a film at home basically on the doorstep of your house in fact the house that bobby um Actually, your home. actually, my house. It's literally, your home. Actually, my house. So. Yeah. We hung it's out there, a, did lots of editing it's there. A, and a very personal film. Bobby would come in, have a shower, get ready for work, shoot off. <laughs> oh, hey, Bobby. Yeah, just yeah. calling. Sorry, mate. No, so, you guys carry on. Yep. Yeah, great. For sure. No, I definitely got that sense, and literally the first shot of the film was a road that I'd driven earlier that day. Oh, cool. So, Which road was that? Uh, it was, it's got like the wavy, it's off the freeway. Um, it's got like the wavy. It's row, isn't it? Things. Not Great Eastern Highway. I think it is Great Eastern. It's got the yellow. Uh, like guys. a very, it was a very specific. Like I drove past, and I was like, "Oh, that's a cool little landmark there." And then uh, it was the first shot. Of it might have been Morrison. Yeah. No. It's oh, sorry. Yeah, highway. the noodle. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. The, 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 yeah, the, the opening. Noodles. The opening that, drone shot is actually uh, yeah, the yellow the question noodle, marks. Noodle the f- yeah. Oh, sorry. Damn it. <laughs> noodle <laughs> lights okay. um, yeah. cross yeah. road highway. The yellow question marks. Where the hell am I? Yeah. No, but cool. I, I remember thinking awesome. that when I, I was like, oh, here we... Like, I already know what I'm in for yep. at this point. Mm. Yep. Um, but, yeah, so there's a reason we had you two on specifically. Um, and I know you two have a bit of a, a friendship, a bit of a history, a bit of a rapport, I can tell. So um, maybe tell me a bit about maybe that before we get into some of the music of the film. Um, okay, so Des and I go way back to high school where we started off... 96. Enemies. <laughs> Enemies. Oh, come on, man. That's a bit harsh. No, we're both You're very. Right. Um, well, well, you know, come on. We're both ambitious. We're both the drama guys. No, um, that's a bit trying to right? yeah, trying to outdo each other. Um, <laughs> and we, yeah, we did a lot of theatre together. Um, and you know, we're in bands together, sort of wanting to conquer the world as rock stars. You know, never crossed um, my mind. Really? No, oh, not yeah. once. Then we um, different guy. We lived together. Um, which was awful. No, it was great. Awful. <laughs> no, it was great. It's my least favorite year of my life. So during that year, it was you know it was great. It was a really sort of creative time for us. We we both sort of wanted to be movie composers at that point, and we were listening mm-hmm. to a lot of Zimmer and Williams and you know Jerry Goldsmith, and it was just yeah, and we were, we were just jamming you know all the time, and yeah, it was a, it was a good time, and so. Um, working with Des um, on this film was, you know, it was both fun and easy because we just, you know, we get each other yeah. musically. So, Well, that sort of leads me to my next question of, like, how did you two sort of approach each other for this film in particular? <laughs> what, what was that conversation like? Well, I... So there's two composers for the film, obviously. Des is our local composer and uh, our other composer's uh, James Leadbitter um, from Norway. Um, I, I always wanted to sort of have this duality in the soundscape where I wanted to sort of have a real raw, earthy, kind of Australian, sinister kind of uh, a, a feel to it, which is what I think Des brings a lot of, and that also have this dreamy component, um, the sort of almost surreal element, which is uh, what James Leadbitter brings um, and what he does so well. He, he, he writes this amazing uh, ambient stuff. So, yeah, so I wanted to have that sort of duality to it. So, um, yeah, I just sort of, oh, God, how did it all start? I think I... Phone call. Was it, oh, that's right. So yeah. I called Des up. This, pop, is before, this is before... Popular form of modern communication. This is before we <laughs> even wrote the script. I actually called Des up for, a, you know, a bit of a DNM as we do. I'm like, um, oh, I'm going to make this movie. Um, he's like, oh yeah, what was what, 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 what it about? I was like, <laughs> and I just proceeded to tell him basically the whole plot. 
um, of the uh, of the film, and he just sort of you know sat there very quietly and went on for about half an hour, and then forty minutes was it? Yeah, call duration checked it. <laughs> Um, and then what was, what was so sort of, I guess, genius of, of Des is that just yeah, by, based on that conversation, he went away, as he does, and jumped on the keyboard and wrote two pieces of music which actually are used in the film. So it's, it's, it's interesting. He didn't, you know, obviously didn't see anything, no images, nothing. It was just based on my, you know, anecdotes and telling him the plot and, um, yeah, we're going to hear those tracks a bit later, aren't we? Absolutely. So that's kind of amazing because you two tracks that made it pretty much all the way to the end mm. just off a pitch. Yeah. Off a phone call. Yeah. Specifically, so Steve was giving me the rundown of the characters and, of course, I was like, who's that character again? What's his? Oh, Shane. Yeah, Shane. And I struggled to remember the names. Mm. But obviously, Bobby straight away took my attention. This Bobby guy, this recluse, this hermit who sort of just wants to be out of it all but all of a sudden just gets constantly dragged into this situation. He just doesn't want to have anything to do with anything. But... It's really it's sort of his journey is the fact that, well, this situation has forced him to be dragged in mm. out of his mm. comfort zone, you know, out of um, you know, his reclusiveness. And I was uh, concentrating on that and all of a sudden he's telling me stories about Bobby, who's these guys, I don't want to be spoilers, but there's obviously moments of the film, there's a lot of tension and, and some unfortunate things have happened and, and Bobby finds himself um, perhaps you know, trailing or chasing these young boys um, through Swan, Swanview Forest, you know, the bushland through there. And I sort of had images of the tension what that would arise where neither party really knows how or why they got caught up in this situation. It's just the way, obviously, through Steve's description, it's like, well, this is really unfortunate. Like, why does this have to happen? So it was that sort of tension mm. um, that I immediately identified as like, well, this isn't anyone's, part of anyone's plan. This is just... Stuff happening, you know, series of events, and and this. So I, I sort of started layering these well, angles of different sounds coming in different time signatures and different keys that sort of created this sort of wave tension. And um, I think I ended up calling the piece vandalism because yep. it was there was a bit of vandalism in the film. Yep. And um, that was it. And so we use that. You you ended up using it a couple yep. of times, which was nice yep. to see that original sort of instinct, that original idea get yep. used in the final product. Yep. All right, well, in that case, let's give it a little bit of a listen, shall we? just told me the 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 um the plot of the film over about 40 minutes and i was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So visualizing these scenes and these characters and um and the setting obviously which was very important so yeah trying to capture the emotion and the setting in a piece of music which is basically obviously the starting point and i knew that the way that i write the style that i write it wasn't going to be cinematic you know hollywood-esque it's just not how i write i knew it was going to be rustic 
So I was going to use simple sounds and uh, basically an overlapping of different um, sounds that probably wouldn't otherwise ordinarily belong together, but make mm. them belong together because you know you got these three boys that have no reason to be intercepting this life of this of this hermit man and, and, and vice versa. So these all of a sudden you got these different sounds that are supposed to juxtapose each other just crossing over inadvertently, unnecessarily, I guess. Mm. So like, well, why is that happening? So that would create tension. And the other one was obviously the setting. And I was thinking about Swanview and what I knew of Swanview, and I don't know, obviously know it as you know intricately as what you do, but I always remember from when I was doing the milk run up there. I used to deliver milk in Swanview. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Jeez, 2007, 2008. And I'd come down that hill every morning mm. at about 8 o'clock every morning. And I remember that, you know, as you'd go and you'd go off and to different supermarkets and you'd be delivering, you know, you'd be delivering milk, you know, but you could hear the sound of the freeway and, and obviously the sound of the crickets and, and the bushland. And mm. you, uh, that's all I was sort of visualizing. Okay, well, taking those sort of sounds and then trying to put them into the setting. But as as well as tension and mood mm. and where are we going? So it was mm. like yeah, a combination of what I knew about the area along with what I knew about these characters, which I'd only just met, you know, mm. through conversation. Mm. So that was where that instinctive idea came from. And um, yeah, very exciting to hear it uh, in the finished product. Um, yeah, it was sort of interesting. I didn't know straight away if Steve sort of got it and got where I was coming from. I guess in, when when I was writing, which is sort of what you want as well, because you want to test. Your director too. You don't necessarily just want to give it to them, you know, you know, quick and easy, bite size. Oh, here's a piece of intense music. Yeah, you want him to sort of look for it as well. So then, hopefully, through that exploration, he'll find ideas that are a little bit you know, edgy or different. You know, mm. so it doesn't feel like a mainstream film, which this obviously isn't. Yep. So yeah, I was, I guess, I was sort of putting the putting the sounds in front of you as, as, as you know a little bit of a treasure hunt for yourself as mm. well as oh they oh they no there's something in there I can mm. use as opposed to well here's an obvious choice for this scene mm. there you go yeah yeah so that was sort of the yeah because I knew you'd respond to it because obviously we knew each other pretty well and I thought I, I know which stuff you'll pick up on and what he will like and what he won't necessarily like mm. and what he'll have to think about and decide whether he wants to use it mm. or not and mm. yeah there was hours of hours of that stuff yeah yeah How great much track of- Sorry. Great track. Yeah, absolutely. I was just wondering how much of this conversation would happen in pre-production versus while you were shooting versus strictly in post? Oh, it, it sort of came in waves. I mean, I would call Des up, get him inspired again, talk about a scene, a character, some of the themes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he would just get inspired, jump on, on, on his keyboard and, and be thinking about a particular thing and then just throw me the track because I'd be mm-hmm. obviously editing the, the film as well. Um, and I would sort of just <clears throat> arrange it maybe use some of it um, and just integrate it with some other tracks and some other things from uh, James, James Liebiter. Yeah. Um, and so that was cool. So it was, it, you know, it was, it was a big process of just trying different things. And for me, you know, um, you know, I was trying to keep myself open as well. You know, it's like you don't really know until you sort of get the music in there and you see it, you know, and you, you know, you can see it and hear it with the characters and in the edit itself. So, oh, it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of experimentation. So I'd quite confidently not look at footage that Steve had sent through of certain scenes. Interesting. uh, Because I'd, or I'd look at it quickly and, and, you know, just a quick glance and go, right, cool. And just take the emotion away. Um, as in into my own headspace and rather than having the footage there and oh you know it goes up a bit you know it it was it was less it was more about i wonder what those guys are feeling right now geez i'm going to take that one day Mm. and then try and fabricate that through sound so Mm. i sort of quite often walk away from the Mm -hmm. footage hoping that the original Mm. instinctive emotion that i was feeling while watching it was there as opposed to literally trying to score the scene 
Um, and then from there, I wasn't really fussed, I guess, if you picked up on it or not, you mm. know, as in like, if you thought, found it was suitable, mm. then great. If you didn't, then perfect, mm. you know, but whereas, um, yeah, uh, that was what, if I'd trying to sort of orchestrate this scene perfectly, you get a bit too attached, you yeah. know, it's kind of, yeah. like, well, this is what I was going for and Steve, oh, there's disappointment. No, here's what I was feeling. Yeah. If you pick that up, then let's yeah. Then so let's put it down. I guess you could say it was a, a little bit of an unconventional approach, right? To it, you know. Yeah, um, but I, I I always find that like my favorite film soundtracks they do come way earlier in the process, mm-hmm. you know. And it's funny I was going through um, some YouTube videos for the crossing. I noticed a comment saying it reminded them of Interstellar, one of the tracks. Oh yeah, I know that track. Yeah, and yeah. I think that was also a film where the soundtrack was like one of the first things produced for yeah. the film. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, lead bit, that was lead bitters. lead bitters. Yeah, yeah I intentionally, yeah, yeah, I intentionally avoided that because yep. I'm made in love with that soundtrack, and I knew that wolf. You know, I got to watch my influences and <laughs> make sure it didn't sound too yeah. Zimmerish. I don't, I don't think it was the bomb that they were referring to. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great in one of those scenes, though. Yeah, yeah. just throw it in there for no yeah, reason. Just chuck it in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a bit of sci-fi in there too. I incorporate a bit of sci-fi. There's a bit of tongue in cheek. Okay. Mm. Yeah, because it's so non-sci-fi. This film, obviously, spoiler alert. Um, there's no aliens in it that we know of. Um, but got to keep looking. Yeah. yeah, I I was ironic with a couple of the scenes as well. You know, sort of like, okay. oh, yeah, which was... Intentionally juxtaposed. Intentionally, yeah. yeah. A bit of tongue-in-cheek, which is kind of my humour. So, yeah, so oh, I wanted to see if we pick up on this. And he actually ended up using it, which was pretty nice. pretty hilarious. Yeah. It means it worked. It worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, the second track I got here is called The Confrontation. And uh, this is also one of the other two that came up yep. from the very early. Yeah, I think thing. this was the second one. Yeah, uh, Des provided. Um, yeah, can, can we hear it? Yes, let's like a listen.
became my that became my axis eventually. I was like, yes, that's definitely the film. You know, like, like John Williams, right? Superman. Mm. And when you, we all go, Superman. Mm. Yeah. As soon as I heard that, I was, it was that doom 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 doom. It was like the crossing. Well, to, it was, yeah. yeah to, to me, that so kind of that tune like, is like. I don't know, it just reminds... It's got that Western flavour to it. It's kind of like man protecting his home kind yeah. of thing. And it just kept... It, you know, obviously it becomes a signature uh, theme throughout throughout the film. Yeah. Well, uh, so I, I kept... Like, and it keeps building. It keeps building each time. Every time you hear it, there's another layer. Layer And then it. Until, finally it gets to this part in the film uh, where, you know, it's, 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 it's basically Bobby chasing them through John Forrest. <laughs> Again, the whole movie's just a chase. <laughs> yeah, it's just a the chase. The whole movie's Catch Me If You Can, <laughs> starring Kelton Pell. <laughs> no, tonight. So, yeah, yeah it goes yeah. into it, but um, that's that's basically my band as well, which was fun okay. to getting them involved. Because, Brown um, Study Band. Yeah, Brown Study Band. So I said, guys, I've got this tune, I've got this idea, and I had... Obviously, several layers and some mock drums and bass on there, but I literally took it to the to the our rehearsal space and set up some mics and said, "Jam along with this." And um, Steve ended up using it, which was nice as well. So, mm. and he, as he ended up using like a lot of the Brown Study music. Mm. Oh, it's um, riddled with Brown Study. Yeah, in, 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 it was handy. Yeah, I didn't handy. expect you to sort of go there, but yeah, I can I can see now why. Yeah, why he did. Mm. Plus, it's homegrown and everything as well, which yep. sort of suited for sure. You know, suited your scenes, which was nice. Mm. There's sort of an unspoken thing about that scene as well where you're sort of following each individual character on their own journey. I mean, that's the whole thing of, like, you know, the intercrossing mm. storylines, but there's almost... I mean, when I watch it, I'm rooting for Colton Pell's mm. character in this scene, you know, because he's just been messed with so many times. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. I can totally see there being a bit of a confrontation within oneself when mm. A little metaphorical there. No, because they don't know yeah. who to root for, perhaps. Yeah. Because none of them are necessarily bad guys. They're bad, you know, they're right. in bad circumstances. Well, we see their perspectives. Yeah. That's right. Perspective, yeah. very yeah. important. Yeah, this film is very much about perspective. And at this point in the film, it's like, you know, all bets are off. It's mm. like, you know, you're, there's a moment where you think the kids are going to get away for what they did. Right. And then you see yep. that car coming around the corner and you hear the music build and you're like, right, that's it. You get them, get them, get them, you know. Yep. You're just barracking yeah, you, you know, totally. yeah, them right to the end. Yeah, it's a good a good analysis. What I noticed as well with designing, see a lot of these sounds was that, and, and, and thinking about those scenes, exactly what you're talking about, where yep. these characters are kind of conflicted. And I was thinking, wow, it's interesting as I started to learn about the characters. Like no one is a really well-rounded character in that they're a complete person. Mm. Maybe with the exception of Abby, Maybe I think there's a little bit of conflict of trust going on there. Maybe a backstory mm. that we don't know about. Mm. She seems well-rounded and complete, but obviously with Chris, Shane, Angus, Bobby, Phoenix, Sav to a lesser extent, there's this conflict. They're yeah. trying mm. to get around this issue that's mm. in their head, uh, whether it's yeah about uh, being true to themselves, being true to their own futures, or their prospects, being true to their friends. You know, or what they want to do, or what they see as being important in their own lives. Yeah. You know, there's sort of being, yeah, and they've got other characters coming in spelling out what they should be doing. You mm. know, you should be doing this. Mm. We, why don't you try? It's like they're constantly in this thing of, why can't I just be content? Mm. And it's not mm. what the film's about. The mm. film is about that struggle, it's about yeah. that confrontation. Yeah. So that and was easy to find that tension. The confrontation. Mm. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Now, I have Contract. another fun one. That um that you sent me through an email yep. where there was a bit of an evolution with this track. Yep. So do you know which track I'm referring to? Paradise. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, but yeah. to un- to sort of understand Paradise, the instrumental version, we sort of have to yeah just touch base on you know um, the song version, which is uh, the song <clears throat> that the main character Bobby sings. Uh, in the film where he sort of, you know, he comes out for the first time and mm. he sort of, he sort of, the song is about where he views himself in relation to himself and the world and, and also how he views the world. Um, and it's it's quite a, an emotive sort of a song and, um, you know, it's sort of wrapped inside a documentary in which the two students are, are, are filming, you know, um, and it's a big turning point in the film. It's like, you know, there's something there's something so much deeper to this character you know mm. and so, so it's quite poignant um so the other track uh paradise the instrumental version des took the song that i wrote uh yeah. the paradise track and I just he, want to specify that you wrote the original okay. which is very important that, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah jumped on the piano yeah yeah and it's yeah it's steve esque what i know of you but yeah it's a great, well, great song it's well, great song yeah, yeah. That. Um, well originally we're actually going to use um a traditional a uh, sort of uh, him, which um, you know, it, it, it was okay. But about three days before we uh, had to shoot that scene, I started just freaking out, thinking, oh, I, don't, I don't know if the, I don't know if the audience is going to resonate with this sort of this sort of song. I, I need something with a broader kind of appeal, and the lyrics weren't working for me. So I, I sort of just had to just jump in and. Um, I don't know, I guess try and save the day, if you like. I, I jumped onto my... Uh, oh, here I come to save the day! <laughs> so I, sort of, I jumped on my piano and, and it was just one of those lucky things where the lyrics uh, just came out straight away. It's like a Bono thing. Yeah. <laughs> it just came out. Yeah, um, and, and, uh, yeah. yeah, and it just came out quite quite quickly. Yeah. Then I quickly um, fleshed the song out with a, um, a local musician called... Um, Rupert John is this amazing, amazing guitarist. Well, I didn't and know that. yeah, yeah. So yeah. we fleshed the song out. Kelton loved it. Um, you know, he, re- you know, we didn't have long to rehearse it. Um, and it was just one of those um, days as well where, you know, when we were filming, you know, everybody was just crying on set. It was just like, yeah. oh, you know, like, I mean, how good's Kelton? Amazing the performance, man. The performance yeah, it's, is amazing. It's, it's, it's great. My song. <laughs> When he goes up, oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> oh man! So anyway, the instrumental version, which we're about to hear, yeah. um, is without giving too much away of the film. It's sort of, in a way, it's it's, it's sort of the tragedy of Bobby. You know, it's mm. it's beauty burning. It's you know, you know, it's what it could have been. You know, if there was communication, if you know, if, if several things had have happened, um, but this is the result. And right. it's and it's this. It was, it was an adaptation. I mean, the melody was there, the chords. Yeah, there was freedom within that to do something a little bit different, a little bit poignant, I guess, as opposed to a song performed for a film. Um, yeah. Um, so that which was yeah, which yeah. was fun. It was nice having a, a a platform to jump off, you know, for a tune because everything else was obviously you know, had to be fabricated from just ideas. Whereas, okay, great, I've got something to start with here, and then. Bit of a source, but if you if you hear yeah. when we hear it, it's, it sounds so different from the from the original uh, song. But it is the song. It's, it's it's a how would you describe it? Yeah, it's an adaptation. It's, a, yeah. it's an adaptation. It's like a version, man. It's like a version. <laughs> so cool. All right. Very well, interesting. Uh, let's hear a bit of the both both versions. A bit of the evolution that. Okay. Oh, we're gonna hear the song all. first, are we? Oh, nice. My soul, it cries. Because we could have paradise 
my soul it cries because we could have paradise 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 we should have paradise Because I, I don't, because you mentioned the tragedy, the tragedy of Bobby, mm. you know, which is which is an interpretation. I saw it more as a as a as a beauty, the beauty of Bobby, which you encapsulate obviously in his performance of it. But there's a soul behind it. There's literally a soul in it. It's a lyric, but there is a soul behind it, which I wanted to encapsulate. And, and soul is movement. And it's free flowing, and it's you know, it's a it's a waveform bef- between what he was experiencing which mm. was performing for people again for the first time um you know so obviously these prime characters and it was a projection of, of of his spirit to these because there is within the crossing in order you know like every crossing will present is that we're in one space we need to get to another which is what all all these characters are going through and bobby goes through it in his own way and as well you you say you've got to make your own crossing of course but you've also got to be open to other people coming in and influencing you to enable that which is obviously what Abby and, and Chris were experiencing with their with their time spent with Bobby so he was that's what I was concentrating on was this this energy mm. this really positive this, energy this, that he this was, is another track that sort of hints coming you know in and out throughout the film till we get to the end and then we we hear the whole the whole track and again it's foreshadowing there's a lot of foreshadowing in this film and I think yeah it certainly leaves you with the the soul of you know, reminiscing of the soul of Bobby, both the tragedy and and the beauty. I think dark track. So yeah, it had to have had to have movement. Had to sort of feel like it was always moving, which the whole movie does. You've seen it, Jake. So you'd probably realise mm. that the entire this is just a spoiler. I'm not sure. Mm, careful, careful. Be, careful. I'll be, be careful. careful. Edit it out if it is. But okay. the whole movie is, is is a complete crescendo, right? In terms of energy, where it starts and where it finishes, like, which is very difficult to do. Might I add? I <laughs> don't remember too many films that have done it before. Where it's really felt like it's starting from a point zero and ending up with 100. You know, quite yeah. often we see this these movies obviously you know move up and down and they flow and we get lulls in the middle and you know tr- yeah. peaks and troughs and whatnot. This film for me personally was a, just a complete crescendo. Mm. Um, 
this, this piece of music had to be that as well mm. because it really is starting with mm. point zero and taking us to a resolution, mm. you know, um, which is necessary mm. in order for all characters to enable their 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 journey. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because so. well, yeah, sonically you're trying to match the sort of the narrative thrust, which is what I like to mm. call mm. it. Where it's narrative thrust, narrative thrust, oh. thrust. Thrust or thrust? C-H. Thrust. See, I had my... When I was in high school, I dated someone who pointed out that I can't say free and free, like the number free and free. So it just bothers me now. What? What's that? I just that? can't say words. F-R-U-S-T. Thrust. Thrust. I love it. Oh, okay. I love it. I thought I was saying word. something incompetently. No, you weren't. <laughs> You're actually being creative. Oh, and okay. I want to find out the definition of that right now because I'm sure there is... Okay. Yeah, it's like a, it has like to a, be. It's like you're on a rocket. Yeah, exactly. Rocking through. Can I just say something about what happened last night? Oh, um, and okay. Sort of tooting our own horn. There's no internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. You know, it was the first time that I'd, I'd sort of ever been at a cinema with a you know a large group of people who mm. didn't move the whole time. Wow. Okay. And they, they sort of, most of them stayed through all of the credits, through all of this song. They yeah. clapped, of course, and you know there was one point where I needed to go to the toilet, and yeah. uh, I felt bad. Like getting up, like <laughs> everyone was just completely still, just watching yeah. the whole time, and it kind of it felt a little surreal, you know. Um, well, it's not the fact that you've seen the film probably five hundred times at this well, point, but it's you didn't want to disrupt 5, the feeling in the room. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was just there was an energy there, and it yeah. was it was the hairs on my my arm was standing up it was it was great the second viewing that i saw it back a lot i can say that it was exactly the same mm. you know anytime that someone would just shuffle in their chair a little bit like, <laughs> <But> <laughs> the rest of the, it was just dead what still right exactly <laughs> a piece of broken off or detached is is a thrust fragments of rock an incomplete piece or portion <laughs> is a thrust yeah i was thinking more like when a rocket thrust forward that's sort of what i was no, I prefer this. Okay. Piece of broken off. So you were talking about a narrative thrust, as in a piece of the that narrative so that has fallen off. We'll continue down that point. Sorry, we cut you off there. We no, went no, on a no, massive no. tangent. It was That's awesome. Right. But you were talking <laughs> about the narrative thrust. I was inspired. Yes. Excuse me. So that oh. thing, things, they all kind of shoot forward. Brilliant. In a certain way. Mm. Brilliant. And a lot of films don't necessarily have that. Well, you're mm. right. You're right. It's more of a sort of... It, it ebbs and flows and sort of comes in and out, but well, it's like a clear beat with each, you know, with each scene in the film. And mm. yeah, you're right; it is one big crescendo, uh, if you like. Yeah, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was intentional or not, but the fact that it has become that, I'm okay with. I, I think that's really clever, <laughs> just because it's very difficult to get a film to do that. Mm. And you know, some of the feedback that I got was that even in that, it doesn't. It, it, you know, it doesn't lull, it doesn't bore. It's sort of like you're building, you're building with these characters, you're building as you get to know them, you sort of get to the end and you're like, oh, yeah, that just happened. You know, <laughs> so again, spoiler alert, but hey, you know, you might not enjoy the film. Sorry. <laughs> we think it's all right. <laughs> well, okay. I can relate to like the overwhelming, like, wow, that was like an experience. That was mm-hmm. like a really, some stories you walk in, you're like, oh, I'm a bit, wasn't satisfied with that or this didn't quite go the way, but I definitely for this one, I felt like, everything tied up really well together and it felt like mm-hmm. I definitely got a feature's worth of story mm. in that. Sometimes not enough story, sometimes mm. way too much story. Very hard to do with, you know, a length of an hour and 50 minutes too. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. it's, you know, we didn't want it to exceed uh, two hours. We wanted it to be quite short. So yeah, it was tough. A lot of editing and refining and uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> putting mm. audiences and doing tests and yeah. Yeah, sure.
Well, it looks like just the audiences and the, the packed out cinemas looks like it's paid off. Yeah, no, well, it's it's been overwhelming. Yeah, the response to the film so far, and of course, I'm desensitized to it a little bit now after mm. seeing it ten thousand million times. Um, but you know, it's it's great. People are really resonating with it, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's an emotional film. You know, and a lot of people can relate to um, even just some aspect of it. You know? Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, it's been. Uh, we're humbled. <laughs> Sure. That, yeah. uh, Steve's going to do a comedy next. He's going to do a comedy. <laughs> yeah, there's an announcement. Yeah, because he's actually like, look, it's Phoenix. You know, he's playing the, the role of Phoenix, and Phoenix is a very intense, conflicted character mm. in the film. Uh, let's not talk about Phoenix. Hey, why not? <laughs> why not? What's wrong with Phoenix? He's good bloke. He's good bloke. He's all right. No, he's not. He's, he's horrible. He's but a horrible human yeah, being. Yeah. All right. Well, you joke, but that, that was the George Lucas approach. His second film was a dare. You got to do a. You got to do a chill comedy now. <laughs> I just that's it's, how it worked out. Yeah, I just there's a there's a there's a sense of humour that's unfortunately yeah. If it was used, I mean it's subtle in the film, but if it was overused, it would be misplaced. It just right. wouldn't be right. Yeah, you know, in order to evoke the emotion. But whereas, yeah, uh, now that you've been through that process, it'd be so much fun to just go ugh oh, and just absolutely. You know, I mean, Des and I grew up doing mostly comedy. Um, mm. You know, so it's really our roots. Um, you know, we're not funny anymore. But believe it or not, you know, <laughs> right down the we're not funny anymore. Wind. But there was no. a time. There was a time. No. We, we promised when we were good. Yeah, it's somewhat um, jaded now. Yeah, yeah, very much. And then so. everything just turned dark. You know, yeah, just dark. Just yeah, dramatic. That's right. Tragedy, <laughs> awfulness. Yeah, death primarily. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah, that's right. That's, well, there's uh, getting very existential now. How do, where do we get to this? I have no idea. I'm scared. <laughs> Let's. Well, before we... before we wrap up, I think there's one more. There's another uh, track. There's, well, something that you mentioned you wanted to end off with. So one of the really exciting things for me uh, with the soundtrack of of the film is that I was able to use um, some music from one of my favourite bands of all time, the duet um, in Nashville called Hammock. And um, the music that they create is, I mean, it's incredibly visual. And uh, they've got this album called Departure Songs and... I've probably heard it more than any album in my life. I still listen to it probably three or four times a week um, as I'm going to sleep. It sort of helps with creativity. It's therapeutic. And it's just, I don't know, just incredibly visual. And, yeah, I was just able to use um, two tracks of theirs in the film, which was, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's one of the first things Steve said when he was um, pitching this movie was, oh, there's this band, Hammock, and I obviously hadn't heard of them. 
Um, but nah, yeah, definitely some of the cinematic, um, uh, some of the drone shots, it just, it aids it perfectly, which is you know, credit to him that he's seen that vision as early as what he did in the process. And again, to see it come into fruition in the final product, very important to hang on to that. So you don't lose sight of what your initial idea was, what your instinctive idea was. So you know, credit to Steve for acknowledging that. Oh, thank you, Desmond. <laughs> You're welcome, Stephen. Yeah, so a bit of a shout-out there. Sorry? Sounds like a bit of a shout-out there. bit of a shout-out to Hammock. <laughs> Can they hear me? I would say more of a lie-down. Oh, it is a lie-down track, but it's <laughs> bloody powerful. gets to me. For sure. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Jake. Coming it's on been a the show. Thanks, man. Thank yeah. you, chat. So The Crossing is still playing locally. Yep. And uh, it's going around, I think it's playing in Melbourne and places. It was still playing around here in Perth area. Yeah, so we um, got um, a screening tonight at Kookaburra Outdoor Cinemas. Um, mm-hmm. There's a screening at Carlton Nova in Melbourne on Jan 31. Uh, there's a Telethon Community Outdoor Cinemas in Bassendine, Jan 26. Uh, and Murdoch, Jan 21. Right here. And Joondalup as well, Jan 31. And we also play the film at Orana Bustleton, Febs 3, and then Orana in Albany, Feb 7. And, oh, what else is there? Uh, oh, at Camelot, uh, at Feb 23. And then also the Matt Dan uh, Cinema in, in, in South Headland, uh, the 19th of Feb. So a few screenings coming up, which is good. Yeah, playing all the way through to February. Yep. And uh, hopefully beyond. Uh, maybe beyond. Maybe beyond. Yeah. The Bustleton one's significant, isn't it, Stephen? Well, that's where we grew up. That's so. where we grew up. Right. We grew yeah. up in Bustleton, so yeah. it's kind of like... That'd be nice. like home. That'd be nice yes. going home. That'd be nice. Yeah. 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 Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you two have a great uh, great bond, great friendship, and I think it comes off well with how well the music and the, the visual sort of gel together. Thank you. Thanks for acknowledging yeah. that. It does make it easier. Yes, it does yes. make it easy. It's like, no, you get it. It's cool. Yeah. Sweet. Move yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> less, and less meetings, you know. Yeah, yeah. You just, yeah, like, you just go, yeah. Des, yeah. this is what I'm thinking. You know? What do you think? You. Yep. Yeah, right. Cool. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Yep. Done. Free AM phone call. I'm on it. Yeah. Yeah. Mate, it's perfect. It you does know? make yeah. it easier. Oh, buddy. Yeah. So awesome. it's been a great experience, you know, um, doing, you know, having Des come on board as, as the composer. Um, for his, his first feature film and my first feature film mm. and, and sort of with all the history that we, that we have, yeah, it's, it's been yeah, it's it's great, you know, it's making um, making a film with friends. <laughs> that's what it, sure. that's sort of what yeah. it felt like, you know. It's mm. One of the best ways to do it. Ah, oh, wouldn't have it any other way. It's well, not what you do, it's who you <laughs> share your carpet with, mate. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. Crossing uh, all of those dates and hopefully more. If you haven't seen it yet, do yourself a favor. Very oh, good. Oh. I can attest. Thanks, Jake. Awesome. Thanks, Jake. Cheers, no dude. Worries. Thank you. That was a fascinating interview um, conducted by you, Jake. Uh, thank you. I can't believe you had a video component with it, too. So. Yeah, it was our first video component of any kind hmm. on the Cinema Stage. I think we podcast. talked about, obviously, moving into season three of this show that we would really like to start doing more of that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, I think now we've had we've had the blessing of having a lot of guests come on the show. We all got their cameos in episode 100. And, yeah, obviously we want to use this, and we've always talked about this, using this show as a platform for, you know, sort of the Perth indie film scene. And, mm. if you know, it was amazing to get that opportunity from the people from The Crossing. 
Yeah, for sure. It's awesome. And, and I generally think the film's great. Mm. And uh, Stephen at the end there just listed off some of the dates you can go to see it. So it's still playing well into February and hopefully beyond. So um, I absolutely recommend check it out. And uh, I, think, I think you'll get more out of the conversation because um, there are certain scenes. I mean, you just heard it, mm. but um, you would have a bit more context of what we talked about um, if you've heard those scenes. But um, again, no spoilers. So not the end of the world. But, no worries. Uh, yeah. But, Jake, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, keeping to tradition, we're watching The Dry. This place feels kind of empty. Did you have anything to do with that girl's death? People, remember what you did. Aaron Fork goes home to his drought-stricken town to attend a tragic funeral. However, his return reopens the door to an unsolved death of a teenage girl. Poor teenage girl. Poor teenage girl. Plot twist is this is a sequel to Baby Teeth. <laughs> no, it doesn't make much sense, but... <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, so, this is an interesting one, Jake. Um, mm. This might be the biggest disparity in score ah! Sorry about that, that we've had... Um, on this show, in terms of our letterbox scores, I think this is the biggest disparity between our two scores it's, ever. It's funny because um, we were sort of joking off the show that, you know, this third season, like official, unofficial third season, we don't enable them by seasons, but yeah, our third year, our third year of the show, yeah. that we should try and, and do more films that we disagree on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've unintentionally already started this because you recommended this film to me. You loved this film. I loved this film. And uh, I watched it the other... Uh, Wednesday, maybe? I think I watched it on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And I did not love this film. You did not? No. And I would love... I love this. I can't wait to have this discussion because I would love to have my mind changed. I'm the only person I know that doesn't love this film. This is fascinating. And I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and they were saying they liked this film more than The Furnace, which kind of blew my mind personally. Because I love The Furnace, mm. another recent Australian film. But I, I, well, I guess we'll get into it. We should say off the top, though, that regardless of what either of us think of the film, I think it's fantastic that a film like this is doing so well at the local domestic box office. It's it hit $10 million in its first month, which yeah. is insane. And given its its budget wasn't incredibly high, I can assume. Well, um. that's the thing with Australian films. They never give out their budgets. Um, I can't see this costing more than things like um, the Danger Close. Like Danger Close was right. like a full blown action film. I would assume this is probably broken even. I would say this probably has a budget between ten to I feel like fifteen million. I, I would I would agree with you based on like what what the film is, like what we've seen. Mm-hmm. Like if you just look at the screen and you have a rough estimate how much it costs, I would say it's definitely under ten million. But I think the fact that Screen West hasn't specific... I don't think they've specifically said what 
that they are oh, we've we've beat our budget or we made it back i mm-hmm. feel like they would say that when it happens it's true so i'm not sure so this film is getting a lot of attention and we have mm. to obviously comment that obviously due to the current cinema climate no pun intended um <laughs> uh, Didn't admit it. yeah um this film was given more opportunities right. because obviously at this time of year um it probably wouldn't get this this as much attention i can imagine it wouldn't get nearly as many uh screen time i'm looking at the hoyts like right now and oh really There's it's like getting it's sessions. got a lot of scre- yeah it's got a lot of screenings and yeah, it's like wow. um it's really good to see an australian film get that much opportunity i went to the cinema i attended it was probably 3 quarters full so yeah even mine was like there was plenty of people there and it's mm. been like 20 days since it came out yeah so that's that's really impressive that it's got that sort of attention and you know obviously we're going to dive into why we like or dislike the film but mm. critically it's done very well um it's sitting on pretty positive reviews on letterbox imdb and rotten tomatoes so mm. um obviously these are not everything and no. if, and that's just because you disliked it is not a problem uh, as long as you're able to tell the audience why you disliked it <laughs> um but I really did enjoy this film. Mm. I think this is... I got really lucky. I had this and, no, and Nomadland in pretty quick succession to one another. Yeah, and, same week, I think. Um, and I was very positive on both. I probably preferred Nomadland because there's more to unpack and it's fascination. But obviously, you can go back to last week and see what we said about yeah, the film there. Episode. See what I mean? This is the longest week ever. We did yeah. Nomadland last week. Mm. This, that feels insane to me. It is true. Um I think this is one of the best performances of Eric Banner's career, um, which I'm okay. looking at your face and <laughs> you are not you are not a fan. Um, so, Jake, I have to ask, because I'm in the majority and you're in the right. minority, why did you feel so lukewarm about this film? You're getting did the heat har- not get to you're, you? You're, get- <laughs> you're getting half on the fact that I gave it two and a half stars, which is still a five out of ten. I don't think this That's is why t- I said lukewarm. Right, fair enough, fair enough. But look, I don't think it's a terrible film by any stretch of the imagination. And I think part of the reason I was sort of so disappointed was the fact that it is so well-liked and that everyone around me, including you, is like, this, this is such a great film, you've got to go watch it. And I don't know. I, I was giving it the benefit of the doubt. And there were so many scenes that I, I honestly found a bit silly. Some of the line delivery made me kind of laugh when I wasn't meant to laugh. Um moments where i was like why is this happening i didn't particularly all care for the the i guess the the answer to the mystery i was like oh okay sort of a bit lukewarm on that i don't know it was just it was a series of little things that were sort of bugging me and that's why it's so hard for me to be like i don't like this film Mm. because there's no there's no real solid one answer i can give you i Mm -hmm. I think it is kind of a hollow story like it's a pretty straightforward mystery and there is sort of an atmosphere to it with the dry australia i had problems with that actually admittedly but it was just a lot of little things that i was like i didn't like that directorial decision i didn't like this acting choice i didn't like this or that i think the writing's weak in this scene just little things like that but i kind of walked down i was like i was so distracted by all these little issues i had with the film that i it it distracted me from the, the wider picture and i can totally see why it's doing really well it's technically the third highest grossing film of 2021 
That's crazy. Yeah, with, with a Russian film number one, or no, sorry, an Indian film in number one and a Russian film in number two. So America's got to pick up their game. <laughs> That's so crazy. But I don't know. There was there was just a lot of things that really bugged me. I and even just the Australiana ness of it all. You know the the thick accents and the mm-hmm. lines and just the overabundance of the good a mate sort of language and you know oh look Tim Tams because Australians eat Tim Tams I don't know I just kept being bothered by all of these decisions. So um, this is uh, Robert Connolly's I think it's upwards of his seventh or eighth feature film. You've seen a few of his films, I think. I have. I've caught Paper Planes, which I was not a big fan of, but it is okay. a children's film. Um, this is definitely the film from him. I've, I've watched two of his nine that are listed on IMDb, but I'm pretty sure one of them is a uh, TV documentary and the other mm. one was a anthology collection. So, okay, interesting. Um, yeah, so I haven't seen too many of his films, just the two, but um, he has been around for a while, so this is not a... a um, it's not a debut. Like a, not a Shannon Murphy sort right. of, yeah, um, situation, and... I find it interesting you didn't like some of the things like line delivery and stuff because I actually think the mystery was very well constructed and I think it left you guessing for a good period of time and there were mm. definite, definite subtle misdirects um, and I went and saw this with my mum so this right. is a really interesting sort of dynamic so we got it in, um, like I said, a relatively packed cinema um, the air, I don't know, this was definitely not a deliberate choice, but it did play with my viewing experience. They didn't have the AC on and it was like a 35 degree day here in Perth. Okay. Uh, so it was hot in the, in the <laughs> cinema and it definitely emphasized the feeling of okay, watching you, this. You got the 4D viewing experience. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, the funny thing is, and Nomadland, I went and saw that in a different cinema and they had the AC cranked up. It right. was cold. It was very in, cold. Yeah. At which kind of played into Nomadland yeah, a bit because exactly. it looked quite cold. Um, and so I really You're playing like 40 chess with your cinema viewing. Yes, apparently. <laughs> um, and I, I really enjoyed this My film. Goodness. I think um, it's a really well-constructed parallel mystery. Right. Um, I like the idea of... I, I said to you when I came out of this, because I saw this probably about a week and yeah, a half Yeah, you messaged you did, me out, straight out the field. I, I said, I think Australia does crime mystery films the best. Mm. Like, it's there, it's the genre that always seems to be seem the to most consistently impressive. I mean, we've done Animal Kingdom on the show. Um, we've talked about Hounds of Love on the show. Mm. Um, they just seem to get that ickiness and eeriness, particularly in middle of nowhere sort of feeling. Yeah. Um, really well, and I I think I just liked from the start. I really liked. Can't believe I'm going to say this. I, I liked the drone shot leading in on the, just <laughs> the bareness. And I, I think I had a couple of things like you know a month ago I went on a road trip and we drove straight through the wheat belt right. and the gold fields, and there's nothing out there. And obviously yeah. this was shot in country Victoria, but it's very similar, obviously, mm. because the middle of nowhere is the middle of nowhere. It doesn't yeah, matter where still, it is. Australia is still Australia yeah. in, that, in that landscape. So that I think that, that lead-in shot and sort of just the eeriness of, like, you know, as one of the characters delivers, everyone's got stuff hiding in this town. Mm. And 
um, I found I just found it really intriguing. Like it left me wanting to know and guess right up until the end. Um, and they didn't pay off the obviously the the backstory to our like main character until the very end too. So right, yeah. Um, there was a really interesting kind of dynamic between the two um, right. stories because you you are left guessing who did what when and and why. I think yeah. all the way up until the end. I I will give the film that credit in the sense that I was never really bored. I felt it was pretty long, but I was never bored. There mm-hmm. is a difference between those two. And in terms of the mystery, like yeah, I was generally like yeah, I want to know what happens mm-hmm. in a sense. I wasn't sort of on the edge of my seat, and I was thinking of because I, I, I the mystery is quite, and I'm not saying this disparagingly at all. It's quite um, it's there. Like this is the mystery you have to figure out. What happened to this? Uh, who killed this person? Mm-hmm. Or is is there a? But but what what's the name of the? Uh, Ellie is it Ellie? Yeah yeah Ellie the girl who uh, disappears when they're young. Um, there's sort of the face value mystery of well how did she die? Did one of the boys kill her or drown her? Mm-hmm. And then of course there's the modern day mystery of what happened with well, the death. And of one of the family. boys was killed in the modern day. Yeah so it's yeah that sort of. So um, I understand that parallel, and it is quite face value because what I mean is like I was thinking of Gone Girl when I was watching this film mm-hmm. a lot, and not only is there sort of a face value mystery in that film where you know where is Amy? She's missing. Is she dead? Did someone abduct her? What happened there? But the film is also playing with the idea that the protagonist you're following, you don't know if they were if Ben Affleck was involved in this. Even though he is the protagonist, you're following him. You still don't quite trust him. It's the unreliable narrator syndrome. Mm-hmm. And the film plays that aspect perfectly. But with this film, and it does play with that aspect in the sense of, yeah, we spend a good portion wondering, did Eric Banner or his character, Aaron, kill you know, Ellie yeah. in his youth? Or is he involved in this new thing? I mean, Or did he uh, know not... something? that? Uh, yeah, well, exactly. I, I never think it alludes to him killing... Well, yeah, that's where I'm going with this. Yeah. Is that I never quite... And the film wasn't trying to, I don't think. I think they've made it very clear that he knew that... He knew um, something his, more than he gave on. Yeah, his his friend right. might have killed. I think it was always counted that Luke, I believe it is... Oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, ...killed Ellie, or at least it's heavily implied. And, and Eric Banner's character of Aaron knew that Luke had done this and obviously chose to keep it secret. Yeah, um, but I guess that's and, true. It's never implied that Luke, uh, Aaron ever did it. I think it's more Aaron knew that Luke did it and chose yeah. to not say it. And thus, okay, you know what? I'll give you that point mm-hmm. because I the film. I don't think you're right. I don't think the film's trying to convince me that oh he might have killed her himself. No, maybe a little bit, but I will give you. It definitely plays with the audience wondering, well, how much does he know? So I'll give you that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Mate, give me a few more points, Zeke. You might, you might put me yeah, up into a positive I think review. That, yeah, okay. <laughs> but um, I think that that was, yeah. It's more implied, if anything, it's implied obviously because of that circle of truth and lies. Mm. Um, because he covered up uh, Luke's potential murder, yeah. um, it's, it's implied that, oh, okay, well, he's here to kind of clear Luke's name because Luke's obviously... He's coming back to this town. He thinks there's been a murder-suicide where mm. Luke has now gone to kill his family, his like small child, his wife, and left this baby to 
to no one. And obviously that's... I think the the point of it is um, Eric Banner's character of Aaron doesn't actually know if Luke did kill Ellie all those years before. So he's believing that if he had not... If he had actually, you know, ratted Luke out all those years before, he mm. could have prevented this murder-suicide from happening and, and the okay. lives of, of of a child and, and a wife. Because the, f- the fact is there was... Because he firmly believes, and he doesn't know up until the literal last minutes of the film, that it wasn't Luke. Mm. And part of him has always thought it probably was, but he kept by his friend because he didn't know where Luke was and he knew what Luke was capable of. He clearly was a kid that displayed, at least in, in, in teenagers, boisterous attitudes and, and slight danger. Uh, but it, I think it's definitely a bait and switch sort of situation. But I, don't... I think that the layers are there and I think all the characters are actually really well constructed around doubt, really, because no one ever cleared up that story. That story always remained murky. They found a girl that was drowned and no one was blamed for it. So they just believed it was a suicide. I get I get that whole general idea. I don't know is I don't know if that was implied the idea that until the very last second <clears throat> that Aaron didn't know Luke did it because there's and we're getting into kind of spoiler territory now. I think we're just mm. gonna jump right in. Unfortunately with a mystery film you really gotta kinda Yeah, there's dive a lot into, of Yeah. I like this film, and I think things that are good... I uh, like the music choices. I think the music choices are really solid. Some really solid composition and some diegetic stuff. Um, and I really like the cinematography. I like the parallels between this dry, desolate place and then obviously back when the original... Um, when the original uh, story between young Luke, young Aaron and, and the girls of, of, of Gretchen and... Um, Ellie, um, it's more vibrant. There's water in the river. There's, you know, the, the, the there's obviously clearly been rains in that time. They really want to juxtapose the dry, desolate with the obviously the more riching environment. Yeah, I want to talk about that specifically. But I, before we move on with this Luke thing, mm-hmm. there is the scene when we're flashing back, and this is after the girl is drowned. That Luke comes in and says, hey, they found your note. They found that you two were going to meet together. Mm-hmm. And I I thought at that scene, at that moment, that was almost like, all right, these two boys are now in it together and they almost know that neither of them did it. And that, they don't even really explore the fact that Luke probably thinks that, that Aaron did it because he left a note. They were basically cheating on him. But that's that's sort of what... It's kind of both implied both ways because I think that although the note situ yeah the note situation was there but I guess the way that they angle that scene is he's also like um young Luke is trying to cover up where he was and we only get confirmed later on that he was with Gretchen so he was actually cheating on um Mm-hmm. On Ellie, because Ellie and Luke were dating as younger people. Like I just, I just remember when that scene um, happened, thinking, I don't think I ever thought after that point that Luke had killed Ellie. I think at that point I didn't. Okay, there was must have been just that scene and that level of trust of the boys. Maybe, and I, I thought but I always thought it was an ulterior reveal. motive scene. I thought that was very much Luke talking to Aaron, being like, 
Trump, but he's trying to cover his own tracks, but he's kind of manipulating his friend because he... Luke I didn't get manipulation at all. No, because Luke didn't see... He didn't see the police with the note. He saw the note earlier on at school, and that's what he's doing. He's That is true. So he's but using, they don't ever prove that that's... But we don't see it, so we can only... So, yeah, we take we're it only, value, yeah. Well, we, we take what we're seeing in a film. So what you're doing there, I think, is you're... Con- you're you're making no, it out like Luke's oh, yeah. seen at the river, but the fact is, we were never. What we saw was Luke looking at, you know, looking at Ellie, and that's the only bit of that scene. Obviously, in ladder in the final bit of the scene, we see Luke with with Gretchen, and so the whole thing is that they're cheating. And the fact of the matter is, you know, Ellie dies at the hands of her her stepdad, I believe it is. I mean, the reason I take it at face but, value is because. We we I mean Luke was there when they took her out, so like they were both boys were there. So I think showing that scene after him seeing the note, and the fact of the matter is he was right. The cops immediately interviewed um, Aaron's dad, so he was well, right. The cops didn't have they, the note. They, they both yeah they had the but the only uh, but Luke was covering. He wasn't covering his friend. He was covering himself because everyone would have believed and often and that's the whole point in the future everyone thinks luke killed ellie in the past which is obviously not true so i think that that scene it it depends how you what you take from that scene clearly you took from that scene oh they're two friends covering each other but i believe that scene is luke's trying to cover his own ass and he's manipulating with the information he knows about the potential relationship between um ellie and uh, young aaron to make them out like, no, we were with each other. Because mm. the fact is, Luke was, it the whole time, he was with Gretchen. And obviously, you know, Aaron wasn't with anyone and Aaron was the one who saw the body. So really, they're trying to cover each other because neither of them want to be based at the scene of the crime. Even though both of them were at the scene of the crime. Or right. at least in the vicinity. Well, at some point, And both yeah. could have been angled to, you know, look like they had murdered him. Because the fact of, the fact of the matter is, they were in the vicinity. But obviously, we find out the person that actually she wasn't. She didn't commit suicide, and she no. was murdered. But she wasn't murdered by either of them. No. But that scene, but even that reveal, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was just like, oh, okay. That, that's I, it. Okay. I like. I mean, I thought there's some really good cause and effect in there, like the the crevice where originally she drops the bracelet, and then later on, towards the end of the film, he discovers that she's actually put a bag in that that crevice where those two right. rocks are. I think. I think it's a really smart I didn't, have, I didn't mind film. that. Yeah. Him finding the bag in there. I, mm. I think there was probably... Because at that point, I was wondering, I'm like, are we ever going to find out what actually happened to Ellie? So I think at that point in the film, so far in, that's probably one of the only ways you could even do it mm-hmm. is he finds the bag through a location they both mutually found. And you're right. They do show him dropping the thing initially. So that's all fine. I think that's fine. I just think the actual thing of, oh, it was just her dad. Okay. And he was one of only two other townsmen who were actually blaming Aaron at any point. That was my thing, is, you know, we read the logline. The whole thing is that Aaron is sort of going back into this town that's full of grief and tragedy and that everyone suspects him. Mm. It's like, it's really just a couple of drunk guys at the bar. Everyone else is pretty nice to Aaron. The the one single say... cop in the entire town is like, oh, just come join the investigation. Yeah, that's up until fine. the end, though, when he believed, well... Until he, he thinks that... Well, then there's that, one scene where he corners him in the hallway and he's like, ah, oh, you're suspicious. And it's like... Well, I don't think there's a lot of people in the town. I think it's to imply that there's maybe... 
there's not a big group of people and and i think for the most part he's not very well received i mean obviously there are two very outspoken people but most people are kind of abrasive towards him i mean (laughs) the only reason luke's parents are nice to aaron is because they want to clear luke's name there's definitely a yeah. A a ulterior. There's a lot of ulterior motives, and I think that that's what I like about it. Is everyone kind of wants? Is to that get an stuff. ulterior motive, though? Like, yeah. Well, but I think that I think he isn't welcome in that town. I think a lot of people. See, I didn't think that at all. I don't think he's in hostile. Te- like, I don't think it's like you feel. I feel like mm. so he should have gone to a different hotel. <laughs> all these. No, there's probably only there's probably only one hotel uh, fair in enough, that fair town. Enough. It, this is a real dead-end, middle-of-nowhere town. There, there is that scene where, yeah, they come up and they, they bang on the door when he's mm. meant to be sleeping. I, that scene does exist. I get it. But I don't know. It's just, I kind Because it's just the same couple of guys. I was like, they could have taken it further where, mm. like, the hotel owner, who he actually has a really great sort of relationship with, they sort of have good bands, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's like he could have been way more hostile. Maybe Gretchen could have been more hostile from the get-go. I don't know. I just uh, the 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 cop Gretchen like he's does inviting... get Gretchen does get hostile with yeah, him. but eventually it should have been from the start. And I feel like even the cop like invites him to his wife and his for dinner at one point. Ah, uh, but his his wife does give a grilling. Yeah, I She's think annoying. it's there. <laughs> I do think it's there, and I think right. um, Obviously, but it wouldn't make for a very... Inch- I I do feel like in the opening, definitely in the opening hour, when he's kind of going and having first interactions with a lot of characters, it does feel like for the majority, um, he's pulling teeth with trying to get information out of him. Um, the character of, you know, Grant and, um, you know, Grant and Sullivan, these characters, they just don't give him anything at first you know when he goes to the house sure the nan is the one that greets him is quite nice but she's also senile and and is very like just mm. you know and but his character doesn't give anything the doctor's character doesn't give anything they're pl- they're pleasant enough like civil but i would say they're not getting they're giving them anything the only character that does is the teacher but we also see the teacher is in a house that looks nothing like the surroundings. You know, he's in this, like, right. estate, build your, you know, build your house quick sort of house. And so he really feels like a, an outlier. And they definitely market him like he's an outlier. He's not someone who's uh, really a part of this. He feels disconnected from everyone else because everyone else, you know, is at the pub drinking and fighting and feel very country-bound. There's definitely that that separating line but i definitely think it's there and i think a lot of characters it takes a lot to get information out of them which definitely helps well that comes into the the ulterior motive discussion i think more so than just their personal beef because they're lying to save their own asses they're not lying because oh that guy's guilty no well they're lying because they're hiding other stuff well exactly yeah like sullivan's character's hiding the fact that he's a homosexual yeah um with the doctor of the town, and they have that dun, personal dun, relationship dun. to the point where Eric Bannon, you know, Aaron Falk basically goes, why, like, I don't care about who you sleep with. Like, I'm tr- you're interfering with an investigation. Uh, and, I, you know, I think that that's where one of the most potent lines in the in it comes there. It's like, oh, everyone's hiding stuff and keeping information from one another, aren't they? So, 
yeah. what makes ours any different. And that's a very valuable point because Aaron's character does withhold information. He's not without flaw. He's not a cookie cutter, clean cop. I think he deliberately hides information or he's repressed information and he's taken that with him for a really long time. And I think that if he can solve, and I actually do think that doubt is there for him about Luke. Did Because he doesn't know if Luke did kill right. Ellie or not. And I don't think he gets that resolution until that last scene with Gretchen. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Because I, I definitely, especially by the end, I thought Luke's name was off the hook for a, a while towards the end of that point. I disagree. I disagree, <laughs> I Gary. I disagree, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what the, else do you yeah, want to talk about? Yeah. The, we might as well get back into the cinematography because I think the common theme is like, I think we're picking up on the same things. Mm-hmm. It's just that I either didn't think it went far enough or didn't do enough with those ideas. Okay. Because I, while simultaneously, I do agree with you in terms of the juxtaposition in the flashback with the, you know, there's water in the river and it's nice and it sort of has that grain over it, like the old 16 millimeter. It does. Grain. I um, really liked that. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I was pretty indifferent. <laughs> no, I was just saying like, I was like, okay. <laughs> okay it's, it's, um, it's better than like a black and white flashback i guess i thought it was That's pretty common. I, I actually thought there was some really it felt hot like it really see feel, i i felt the heat when i was watching it see i didn't because i mean we talked about this very recently we talked about did um, you watch it in the cinema with aircon <laughs> <laughs> you know what? i was kind of like not sick but like i was like kind of wanting to cough in the okay. cinema, and I was like, I probably shouldn't because yeah, it's like wrong place to do it. I know a lot of people around me, but um, no, because I thought of films like Do the Right Thing and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, where we talk about the heat in those films and the characters are constantly sweating and that. And I didn't, I it didn't feel like the characters were acknowledging the heat so much. I just didn't get that sense. I also thought it wasn't obvious enough. The fact there is, that it's okay, so there is one. I actually think all the characters do, except Aaron Fork. There is sometimes where he's walking around and we're meant to feel the heat, and he's got no sweat marks under his like button right. shirt. And I kind of want to be like, he has one scene where he wakes up from a nightmare, and he has the oh, littlest yeah. bit of sweat. And I was a little bit like, okay, you, do you want to emphasize the heat? They like, could have played with that so he much. He needs because I reckon other characters do look really quite sweaty. Like, okay. Um, I definitely think Grant's character and like the tradie miner uniform, he looked. He definitely looked like they. All, I think everyone looks, and this might have come like, comes back to the thing where it feels like a little out of place. I feel like everyone belongs in that town, except Aaron. Aaron is definitely marketed like he's an imposter. I think it's because they just frame him as he's the hot male protagonist okay and he's got tight shirts and doesn't sweat a lot look i'm not the biggest fan of eric banner but i actually thought his performance was really solid here i, I can't pick i can't pick many films that i've been like i just i really enjoyed this eric banner performance i don't think he's given a lot to do though like he's he's, just, he's, he's pretty he he's doesn't give i mean you say is he doesn't in, give a lot is it the inflection is it the way he says delivers the lines i think, I think the does. way they all deliver the line is I, I, I like. I'm sick a lot of, of them trying to be Australian so hard. I'm sick okay. of that in general. Okay, so I'll, a, I'll say that. But like, there's fair. one line that he delivers that I was like, "Geez, calm down." Was he's first talking to the cop and they're going through the initial crime scene mm-hmm. and they're looking at the door and he's like, "Oh, you know, would you go to your missus? Would you open the door?" And he says the way he says it, he's like, "Oh, I'm not married, mate." I was like, "Calm down, Jesus." 
Mm. It felt like an important line, but it's not because we know he's not married because we saw him by himself in the hotel. But then he kind of almost yells it. Mm. I don't know. Just stuff. I was, it, it made the I next did, five minutes me thinking about the line. I really liked the sergeant's performance. Okay. I thought he was really good in it. And particularly that scene where he's kind of got that that sort of like icky sort of feeling. Shaking around. Yeah. Really, right. I, think he, I thought his performance was really solid. Okay. I liked... Admittedly, I, th- I think I, I said this when I came out of the cinema. I preferred young Aaron's performance. Um, who was yeah, I, you know what? Joe Klosek. Um, Gave me a Lucas Hedges type vibe. Um, I actually thought that quartet of the young, they're actually all really solid performances, all four of yeah. them. I want to um, see them more. All four of them? Yeah. Uh, so Sam Corlett, uh, like I said, Joe Klosek. Um, just having a quick Look, uh, Ellie Deacon was played by B.B. Uh, Betancourt. Wow, that is a Betancourt. sweet name. And I will give her a shout-out because she does... And Claude do Scott a... Mitchell. Right. I want to give B.B. a shout-out because of her excellent cover of Under the Milky Way. Oh, which that is, is one of my favourite ones. Oh, which is also covered uh, by Gina Williams. Really? Yeah. That was an excellent scene. I have that now on my playlist. That, oh, nice. That, that one from her. That was great. Yeah, they just let her sing on the camera. That's yeah, shout out. Yeah. I like the song cool. a lot. Um, Originally from Steve Kilby. Shout out to Steve Kilby. There you go. <laughs> um, so we've got two. Yeah. So yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, well, I don't. I don't think I really finished my point with the the dryness because I yeah, mean, like I said, it didn't feel like the characters were all that. Sweat. At least I didn't get that mm-hmm. vibe, or it didn't make me feel really hot. But even just thematically, like I didn't quite. I know thematically, it's it's meant to juxtapose like they had the water and that's how she drowned and now it's all dried up i get it's sort of a a memories thing mm-hmm. you know they're now in a, in a world where the kids of today can't have that same experience i suppose i i was also just annoyed by the the way they um expositioned it whereas like they put it on the radio i was like okay that's fine like the radio oh it's the driest season but and then they add text saying it's like 380 days since rainfall Oh, I loved... I, I was loved, like, just put it on the radio. I loved that. I actually thought that was a really good, like, subtle... Like, it's the whole thing is they're waiting for change to come. That's what I got out of that. I just, I'm just i talking about the mode of delivery. Why couldn't she just say it on the radio, it's been 380 days since... Mm, I kind of... Fall. I liked it. Nah. I this, actually... This, that was one this, of my... This, this is goes, so strange. This goes way back to our Civil War... Infinity War discussion from oh, Avengers. The text... I well, love. I the hate the text. It's, the bigger it is, the more I hate it. <laughs> I loved the. I loved that. That was one of the first things I was like, "Oh, okay, I like this. This is so fascinating." That was my first thing where I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. This is so weird because it's not like we took different interpretations of it. Some so our yeah. interpretation of of Aaron's suspicious of Luke, like we take it a little differently. But for the most part, we're just commenting on the exact same filmic conventions." But I just didn't like it, and you really liked it. Yeah, it's kind of odd. This is very odd. We're, we're out of sync. We're usually on the same page with this kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, well, this is a fascinating. Uh, I I really liked that because that immediately made me feel like, um, oh, okay, so we're going into this like we really should feel like the dryness. We should feel the this this entry into this arid. Uh, real middle it really helps to isolate it a bit more i think and mm. we have huge drought problems in in australia um and it, they're getting worse by the year so 
I think it helps ground that ochre Australian. And I know you, like you said, you don't like, you're really getting annoyed at these over the top stereotypical Australian delivery. Yeah, accents. And I can sort of attest to it, but I didn't think it was too bad in this film. I think country, like you also got to think this is country, like rural Australia. And I imagine a lot of that comes from those places that are further out sort of stuff. Um, but I didn't think it was too bad. I mean, putting saying the word mate, I don't think is is like. A, there was just something about the delivery where it felt so forced. Okay. Like you know, we call each other mate and stuff. Yeah. But it's like every two lines is just some. Oh, what is what does he say? He says something when 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 he's leaving the hotel and then he jokes like, "Oh, give me a good review." He says like two on Yelp. Is it Yelp? Oh, on Yelp or whatever. That that wasn't what I was thinking. I was thinking more TripAdvisor. When he leaves, he's like, "Oh, no, no trouble, mate." Or oh, what does he say? He said something that I was just like, "That's like fitting two different goodbyes in the same sentence just mm. to be Australian." It was something like that. Interesting. It's really interesting that I remember you weren't. Line. Maybe it's just getting to you. You've had too many Australian things in the last week. Maybe. Well, <laughs> look, the thing. I actually did write this down because we talked about the ten million dollar opening sort of mm-hmm. month half month i guess i think it opened with like 3.6 million or like the first week mm-hmm. which is crazy and i i wrote down a bunch i mean just in the last few months we've had baby teeth and the furnace and the crossing and penguin blooms out and and high ground i mistakenly said it came out in the last week it actually comes out in this next week there we go but it's like there's a lot of australian films that are out now and it's great to see them coming out but mm-hmm. it's like I know it's a different setting. I know it's more suburban, but Baby Teeth didn't need the accents. They had them, but like, uh, I don't know. It's, it was. I think it does play me. into geolocation for yeah. sure. Um, I think the more rural, because the funny thing is, I watched this, and then probably this time last year, I watched the 73 Wake and Fright and also the telly movie series they released mm. a couple of years ago. And it's the same matey dialogue and i think it's just to do with the location like um maybe eric banner's character's delivery might be a little off simply because he's definitely not country he's very much um metro sort of like placement and i like you know i talk about you talk about baby teeth you're right they i think they use it sporadically but it's not a crazy and i just watched bump and it's the same thing it's not a It's not an oh, oh hokey the castle Australian mateship sort of stuff. Um, it's it, way more, but I think it has to do with the location and where it is because I think more rural that stuff creeps in more because the fact is the difference between like country and rural Australia and sort of your metro coastal Australia it's huge because mm. you know m- the more people out there out in those places have been there for generations and they do emphasize that which means these are like generational australians whereas we have a way more um cultural sort of placement in sense that we have a lot more diversity and multiculturalism on the coast and in the metro so that sort of that that pure australian stereotypical identity has been lost i think over over the last couple of generations simply because we're subjugated to so many more different cultures so 
we've had to normalize a lot of our universe. Well, we had to create a more universal language. And I think out there, I mean, they, they address it with um, the school teacher's wife being, um, you know, of sort of Asian oriental. And they address the fact that she feels afraid to leave the house sometimes because mm-hmm. of some of the people out there and what she's subjected to. And there are a couple of racist remarks thrown her way in the film by characters. So I think that bigotry still exists out there to an extent. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that that needs to be taken into consideration for sure. That's fair. I suppose, I don't know. You're just not a fan. No. And it's like, even I presented my point. I think of like Muriel's wedding where it's like, they do sort of that castle esque accent, but it almost feels comical. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like they're, they're sort of taking a piss take out of it. And then I think of Priscilla, queen of the desert where, that works because they're doing the thick accents, but of course, it's over the backdrop of, of something that's so feminine and so full of you know LGBT plus themes that it serves as a funny juxtaposition. And so I've, I, I, don't know, I just think of all these other films that use the accent in clever ways, and this just feels like it's using it for the sake of using it. And I don't know. I, uh, it's hard. This is one of those films where... It's it, for me. It would be fun to pick apart doing like a commentary track, like as I'm watching it, pointing mm. out. I mean, because like I feel it feels nitpicky when I'm like, oh, this line was silly and this was silly and that was silly. Like it just I feel nitpicky talking about it that way. Because you, I think you raise excellent points, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not going to call anyone silly or dumb for liking this movie. But a lot of people can sort of. Mm. Get over those things that annoy me. Yeah, it's a me. It, I think it's a me problem. That's, That's fair enough. So, would you like to address your highlight scene? Sure, I will. I'll give you a proper highlight scene and a piss take highlight scene. <laughs> My piss take highlight scene is the fact. And to be fair, this is a this is a consistent trait in Eric Banner's character. This is something that he does as a kid and as an adult. So I guess it gets a pass mm-hmm. because he does it consistently. But it also made me kind of laugh out loud. Is not once, but twice, does he choose to make out with girls in the most strangest transitional conversations ever? Talking about your mum before making out with BB's character is strange. And then in the future, when you're with Gretchen, looking at photos of your dead high school crush before making out with the girl is also strange. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> and my, okay, I'll, and I'll give you this. My real highlight scene is I did like the rapport between Eric Banner and the, the bar guy, the hotel owner. Okay. I thought they had fun dance. Their, their relationship grew where he's like, oh, two night minimum, one night. Just sort of tell him like, no, I'm seeing one night. But then the joking manner of he keeps coming back and then, I, that was fun. I okay. like that. I would have to say my highlight scene is more a sequence. It's the sequence when um, Eric Banner discovers the journal in the crevice. Okay. And we do get to see probably the most emotion that he has in the whole film in terms of his oh, like. That's true. He cries. Really, he cries. And he actually does it pretty well. And we get to see sort of the final uh, part of the story and it's a really good sequence that still keeps you guessing i think and you sort of understand that um the young eleanor character was subjugated to uh, you know sexual and violent abuse from her her father or stepfather i think it was and yeah we just get to see the fallout of that and it leads to a shot where 
we get to see the senile version of I've got to just quickly check his name. Oh, the dad's name of the dad's character and sort of the regret in his eyes and stuff, and you can see that. What's um, Ellie's surname? Uh, it just Deacon. says Ellie on here. I'm sorry, De- uh, Deacon. Oh, of course, they say it in the film. Too. Mm-hmm. All right, well, is there a Mr. Deacon credit in here? Uh, Mal Deacon. Ah, oh, William Zappa. Um, and his character, yeah, we do get to see that. And it's pretty good between that and... Um, I would say between that and then the scene where young Aaron is being driven out of town by his dad. They've been ran out of town. Oh, yeah. And there is a really good scene between them, the two of them finally asking, did you have something to do with it? And just that whole sequence of Mal chasing them out of town and the dad getting out of the car. And yeah. we do get to see like an aggression look in his eyes. It's a really good scene. I want to see more of those young people. I do. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so The Dry is currently out in cinemas near you. Um, near me, near you, oh and goodness. we would, yeah, we would love to keep spawning more money into the Australian film industry. So, yeah, I would I'm, recommend I'm, seeing it. I'm glad. Yeah, look, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of the film, but I'm glad that you're right. Australian cinema mm-hmm. has seen some great intake, great audiences, um, money. It's good. Screen West need the money because then. They can fund smaller projects that perhaps you and I can work on one day. So absolutely, in a very selfish way. Speaking this of film. <laughs> new projects, Jake. What is new in streaming platforms, net uh, and cinemas this week? I'm going to try a segue here, Zeke. Let's see yeah. if it works. Okay. Okay, give it a go. If you're a big fan of the Cinema Sideshow podcast, and you heard earlier that I talked about the crossing interview as something I teased two weeks prior, if you went back and listened to that same episode two weeks prior. You would have also heard me talk about a film called The Dig, the Casey or Carrie Mulligan film. That comes to Netflix this week. Coming to stand this week. Did you like my... You know, I did. I love no? that. Okay, good. good I dig good. it. Good. <laughs> 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 this is the name of the movie. Ah. Coming to stand this week. This blew my mind, Zeke. Apparently, this is coming to stand this week. Okay. Chaos Walking. For those who don't know, this is the film that stars Tom Holland in a dystopian world where no women exist and all living creatures can hear each other's thoughts in a stream of images, words, and sounds called noise. It also stars Daisy Ridley as, I guess, the only woman in the entire world slash movie. And here's the thing. It once was credited as being written by Charlie Kaufman. His name no longer appears on any of the film's metadata. Really? Somewhere between... This is a film that's been in hell forever. And part of it is they needed to wait for Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley to respectively finish their 500 other films they're shooting so they could reshoot their scenes for this to finally get it out. And apparently it comes to stand this week. I saw that and was like, what? <laughs> I did not believe it. So take it with a grain of salt because I still don't... I think it's a little too good to be true sort of moment. No, yeah, of course. What did you think of the logline? Dystopian it's, world, no women... I'm intrigued. I kind of want to watch it. <laughs> it it sounds and wacky. Tom Holland? Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. See, Uncharted got delayed again. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> what, they're going to edit it in like six months? Like, pff, get out of here. Go on, get. get. Go on, get. I was kind of excited to talk about it this year. Finally. I've been waiting for that film since... 
Nearly 11 years now. Jake, honestly, if we ever get, if it ever makes it to cinemas, it has to be a weekly discussion episode. For of sure. course. Yeah, of course. Sure. And would... you have to dress up like Nathan Drake. Oh, easy. <laughs> easy. I can do it. I want to get Steven back on for that episode, oh, if be... possible. Yeah, that'd be cool. Because he played all the games about a year or two ago. Yeah, I'll try. I'll try play all the games before then. Okay. <laughs> no, well, that's fine. Because I've watched all of Thief's End. On a let's I watched on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I just watched. I watched the whole game. That's the last I, one. I watched a years ago. I watched an achievement hunter playthrough. Oh my god! It's, it's, it's a throwback. It's a PlayStation. He doesn't even have achievements. <laughs> yeah. No worries. Uh, what else is new, buddy? So coming to cinemas this week involves, uh, or I should say, includes Pixie. Uh, which sees Olivia Cook play the titular character as she masterminds a heist to avenge her mother's death, but must flee the island from gangsters, take on the patriarchy, and choose her own destiny. It sounds wild. It kind of gave me a Snatch vibe. Mm. Sort of the energy of the, the trailer I saw. Um, speaking of trailers, and this one's this one's terrible. I'm, I'm just going to say it. This looks really bad. Occupation Rainfall, which sees a group of survivors from Sydney, Australia, fight in a desperate war two years after aliens land on Earth. I saw a poster for this. Okay. Up near Murdoch University when I was walking to work. Does it look noisy? Boy, <laughs> I think that's got some Pacific Rim vibes for oh, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe not like... Maybe one third of the budget. Yeah. <laughs> and at least I can like enjoy parts of Pacific Rim. Right. Like the fighting. Yeah, I saw the trailer... Um, actually, I think I saw the trailer ahead of the dry when I was watching The Dry, and I was like, man, this looks so bad. <laughs> and finally, I'm really excited for this one, but Zeke, we've got we both got plans mm-hmm. during this time, so I'm going to let the audience have a chance to see this film before we can. Uh, this Sunday, the 31st at Luna, there is a special preview screening for Minari. Now, for those who don't know, Minari is the highest-rated 2020 film on Letterboxd, beating out No Man Land. And uh, apparently he's going to be a huge contender at the uh, best foreign film or best international film mm. uh, categories. Uh, it sees a Korean-American family moving to Arkansas in search of the American dream. Stars Stephen Yun of Walking Dead fame and directed by Lee Isaac Chan. So I'm so excited for this I film. I saw a trailer for this. Oh, really? I think. Yeah, from Yeah, yeah it's the... Yeah, I have seen. I oh. saw one before I'm um, No Man Land. Oh, wow. They played the before No Man Land. Yeah, I saw the trailer. Hell yeah. I haven't seen anything. Mm. I've just like heard about it and know like it's so widely praised. Apparently it's like, it's just such a feel good film. Yeah, it looks good. It's uh-huh. got kind of like, makes me feel a little bit like Farewell. Obviously not with the sadder undertones well, of Farewell. Right. The happier moments in Farewell. Right. The heart of it. Yeah. The heart. The I mean, they're both, they're, they're such a heart film. Yeah. You can go to our discussion for that one too. Oh, Farewell. Episode 98. Yes. No worries, but we, see, we we've, un- done, we've done every film. We have. <laughs> We're not catching that film next uh, week on the show. But Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, we're watching Promising Young Woman. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. 
A young woman haunted by a tragedy in her past takes revenge on the predatory men unlucky enough to cross her path. Zig, I picked a very vague description for that one. I'm glad. Um, because... Sort of trailer to this one too. Oh, okay. Very nice. I, I'm, yeah, can't just can't see it. You've talked a little bit about it on the show already. I think um, last week I might have talked about it. But we'll before. have a more in-depth conversation because this is getting a little bit of award buzz. A lot of buzz. So um, Emerald Fennell's directorial debut, I believe, and people people liking what she's doing. It's very, very risky film, and I'm very curious to see what you think of it. No worries. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Promising Young Woman.